Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> uh, we'll read the last few verses of this chapter, starting in verse 16 through verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16 through verse 21. If you would follow along as I read. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Is that not the message of the season? This is what we have been singing about even this very morning. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners what? Reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. We read of this in this passage, 2 Corinthians 5.18 God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19 says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is what the coming of Jesus Christ into the world means. It means that God and man who were enemies by virtue of our rebellion against God can be reconciled to each other, can move from being enemies to now being at peace, to being friends. And what it takes is a response to the saving work of Jesus Christ. He came into the world born, as we know, of a virgin, born as a young child, as an infant, grew up, lived a perfect life, and then he died upon a cross doing exactly what verse 21 says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who is him who knew no sin? That's Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 2 says that he was tempted at every point as we are, yet without sin. He was one who became like us. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like us in our humanity in every way except for his committing of sin and this one who never sinned who knew no sin God made to be sin on our behalf not that he made him to sin but that he treated him as if he had he treated him as if he were guilty when he was on the cross and he placed the punishment upon him it says on our behalf in our place in our stead 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Those who by faith in Jesus Christ are joined to Christ in union with him who are in Christ become the righteousness of God. They are credited with a righteousness not their own, an alien righteousness, a heavenly righteousness, one that treats us as if we were completely perfect and sinless and as if we had been completely righteous for our entire lives. We get that as a gift of God's grace because Christ was treated as if he had committed the sins that we had committed. This great exchange is the reason for the season. It isn't just that Jesus came into the world, of course. It is that Jesus Christ was the one who was the mediator for us before God as the sacrifice and substitute and as our great high priest who offers up his own blood to God on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to him. This is the message that the Apostle Paul and his fellow workers carried around with them. This is what was the message that they proclaimed, and this is what they understood. It changed the way that they view the world. It changed the way that they saw things. It changed their entire outlook and their inner man, the way that they thought, the way that they felt, the way that they desired to do things and what they wanted to do. We can see this in the early verses of the section that I read where he says in verse 16 that from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even if we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. What he's saying is that we don't look upon people the same way that people do from a human perspective. It's not that we don't think that Jesus still is in the flesh or that he has flesh and bones. We see this in the resurrection that he very much does. He told his disciples, look, touch me. You can touch my body and see I'm not just a spirit. I have flesh and bones. A spirit or a ghost doesn't just have, uh, doesn't have flesh and bones. I have that. So even after his resurrection, he still is in human form. But what Paul is saying is that we view people differently. We view the world differently. Everything is different when you become a Christian. And that changes the way that you interact with everything and everyone. And it changes what you do. It changes what you practice. It changes how you think about every situation. Verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This speaks of a new inner man, a new heart. We call this regeneration. We call this the fact that a person is born again and a person is a new man in Jesus Christ. And out of this new man comes new desires and new practices, new thoughts, new wishes, a new will, everything is made new. And part of what that new man then expresses is this heart for ministry that the Apostle Paul writes about. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to come to the conclusion of a series we've been studying for a number of weeks and even months now, Your Ministry in the Church. And what I want to do this morning is to consider as we wrap this up, uh, the heart behind faithful ministry. The heart of ministry. What is it that is going on on the inside, in the inner man of someone who is doing faithfully, uh, faithful ministry before God? Uh, as we've gone through this series, there have been a number of things that we have looked at, of course. But uh, some of the major lessons have to do with, first of all, understanding the meaning 
and the purpose and the goals of ministry, namely that we are serving other people according to scripture. We are serving them according to the Bible. Uh, We are trying to accomplish the goals of bringing about love in those that we minister to. We're trying to bring about worship. We're trying to practice discipleship. We're trying to see people transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We are trying to do this in and through and out from the local church. And to do so, we need to have a number of principles undergirding us, in particular things like having a high view of Scripture, where we exalt Scripture to its proper place as inerrant and as authoritative and as sufficient for the work that we've been given to do, where we have a high view of God that the church is about Him and our ministry is about Him, not about our own ends and exalting ourselves. We understand that this is vital to have the gospel at the core of everything that we do. And we need to know that that gospel changes people when they're saved. We need to have a biblical practice of leadership, a focus on the future. We need to be praying. These are all things that we need to do. And so we need to have a faithful philosophy of ministry. We need to understand the principles that ministry is to be done by. And then we, of course, also looked at some ways that we can minister both inside and outside of the church as the body of Christ, as those who have been gifted, as uh, people who have been charged with practicing the one another's and so on. But as you do this, there is, of course, the danger that you might be hypocritical, that you might grow weary, uh, that you might be doing things for improper and impure motives. And Often, even people who are very faithful, in fact, perhaps even mostly people who are very faithful, are deeply concerned to make sure that they're not doing things according to bad motives. And not only that, but it's not just that we want to avoid doing things out of bad motives. It's that we need the proper motives and the proper attitudes to even sustain us through faithful ministry in the first place. It's really difficult to continue long in doing what God says to do if our hearts are not actually cultivated to want to do that properly. It may be easy for a time or a season to do the kinds of things that Scripture tells us to do, but if we're not properly driven and motivated, and if we don't understand what God wants us to do, and if our hearts are not transformed by His Word in order to have these kinds of motives and attitudes— We're not going to be able to endure. We're not going to be able to face the hardships that come with ministry. And we will revert to inactivity or selfish activity or only doing it when we have certain external incentives or other things that are going to prevent us from doing the kind of ministry and doing it in the kind of way that God intends. So the question then is, what should we keep in mind as we think about how we should do all that we've been instructed to do? What's going to enable us to do this in a God-honoring way? And what's going to drive and sustain us in actually ministering to the needs of other people? And so to do so, I want to look at three things this morning that are behind the heart of ministry, uh, starting with some dangers that we are all going to be tempted to have as we're considering doing ministry and why we would do it, what's going to drive us to do it, what we might be tempted to do in the midst of it, even if we get into it for faithful motives in the first place, even if we start serving people and looking for ways to carry out our responsibilities in and out of the church, what's going to be the kinds of things that are going to come along and tempt us as we go? So let's start by looking at this with dangers to avoid. Consider some dangers to avoid. And we'll begin with one that is largely for people who are in leadership, but nonetheless uh, is applicable in some ways to all, which is the misuse of authority. 
the misuse of authority. And this one's pretty straightforward. First Peter chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there, you'll see uh, that would be helpful. We'll be there for a couple of more passages. But First Peter chapter 5, um, Peter writes these words in verse 3. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Here you have elders who have been given responsibility to oversee the church. That's who this passage is written to. They have been given oversight. They have been given authority. They have been given leadership. And yet Peter recognizes that there is a temptation, even among those who were qualified when they were appointed, to misuse this authority and to lord it over those allotted to their charge. This, of course, could include all kinds of things such as uh, taking advantage of the fact that you are in leadership to get something out of people. It could be that you are lazy and you insist upon other people working. It could mean that you manipulate and you threaten people. All kinds of things can happen here. But misusing authority is one of the dangers that we need to avoid in ministry. So anytime you're given the opportunity to lead in any way, you want to make sure that you are using it for the sake of the people who are under your care rather than using it for your own sake. He says, instead of lording it over and of just bossing people around, instead, verse 3 says, you are to prove to be an example. And so while this doesn't mean that you are never, if you have any authority, that you're never to use that authority in any way, what it also says is that you, along with that, and as you exercise that authority, you're also yourself supposed to be an example of what godliness looks like, an example of willingness to serve, an example of the kind of practices that you would tell someone that they ought to be doing. So don't misuse authority. Instead, use it properly. Another danger to avoid is here as well, but it's back in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This is the second danger to avoid, a love of sordid gain. Really just what this means is getting something out of people that is not yours to have. It is using some type of ministry, some type of situation, some type of authority to get what is improper for you to receive. It is that you are out for something. You are only in it for yourself. And so this can come in all kinds of ways. Of course, the most direct is going to be uh, about getting money and about getting stuff from people, material gain. Of course, it could be for reputation and so on by way of application. But the main thing here is just getting stuff by virtue or because you do this work, you're doing it for this goal of just getting something. And it's not about eagerly serving. It's not about doing it voluntarily. It's not about the need for people to be cared for and to be ministered to. It is just about getting something out of it. This is a problem uh, often that showed itself in really religion of the day. And this is just something that comes up in religion over and over again. Uh, if you want to look over with me in 1 Timothy, you'll see a few examples of this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, by the way, we'll be turning uh, to quite a few passages today. That's not just to keep you awake after breakfast. There's just a lot of different places to go, but maybe that'll help. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. 
If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain." They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, we see the word godliness, and very often it does have the sense of what we think of it as just moral rightness in response to the gospel, of being godly, of having godly character. This is a little bit bigger word, though, in this context and in the context of 1 Timothy. For example, in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, "...by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness." He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and so on. He's talking about the message about Jesus Christ. So when you see the word godliness here, um, there is more behind it than just the idea of living godly. It really has to do more with the entire Christian religion. And so these are people who suppose that practicing Christianity is a means of gain, and not just practicing, but even uh, being someone of good repute, someone who is a leader, someone who is a teacher. They see Christianity as a means of gain. And if this doesn't describe the history of why so many people would come after Jesus and would try to follow him or would try to lead the church or would try to do ministry in one way or another, then I'm not sure what will. Sadly, many people attempt to profit off of the Christian religion. And they think that it is about that. They think that Christianity is ultimately the means to the end of some way of improving their life, whether materially or otherwise. And they don't see godliness as the end in itself. They don't see the Christian religion to glorify God as the end in itself. What do they see instead? They say, well, if I'm godly, I will get X, Y, and Z. And it could be money. It could be a job. It could be that their marriage will improve. It could be that someone will be interested in them. It could be that their friends will get better. Their grades will get better. You name it. But they see godliness as a means of gain. Paul says in verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Godliness is a means of great gain, but not that kind of gain. Not about the stuff that this world chases after. It is a sad thing today that many people see Jesus as the way to get something else. Now, it's not that God didn't say that Jesus is the way to get certain things. Jesus is the way to salvation. Jesus is the way to actual godliness. Jesus is the way to be reconciled to God. So he did come to bring us certain things, but there are other things that he did not come to bring us and we need to be very careful that we avoid coming to him or trusting in him or trying to be good or trying to minister or try to lead or any of those things for the sake of getting something else out of it it must be because this is what God says and this is for his glory and his honor and everything else comes behind that this is a warning then for those who would aspire to leadership in the church first Timothy 3 3 an elder must be free from the love of money. First Timothy 3.8, deacons must not be fond of sordid gain. 
We need to be aware of trying to practice ministry for the sake of getting something. So when you're thinking about, will I serve? How do I serve? What's at the end of that tunnel? What is at the end of that as you consider, why am I going to do this? What is the difference maker that gets you up off the couch to do that ministry versus deciding that you would just rather not actually take it on? What at the end of the day drives you to make that decision? Is it biblical ends or is it, you know, if I do this, I can get something out of it beyond what God promises that I should be seeking from it. These are the things we want to avoid in our heart. Don't be a lover of sordid gain. Also then, number three, another danger is the love of man's approval. The love of man's approval. John chapter 12, verse 41 through 43. It warns against the attitude held by the Pharisees and the rulers of the day when Jesus came. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, that is Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Jesus warned against Pharisaical religion, the leaders known as the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6 among other places. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about several things that they did. He says in verses 1 and 2, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be what? Noticed by them. To be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So then when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Don't minister to other people inside or outside of the church so that you can get the praise of men. Don't do it so that you'll get a commendation from someone. It's a wonderful blessing when someone encourages you and says, you know, I've noticed your growth. I've noticed that you do this diligently. I'm very proud of you. The Apostle Paul would even talk about his boasting on behalf of certain churches. He said that even of the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians who gave him all kinds of trouble. And yet when we practice it in order to seek those things out, then we are eliminating the heavenly reward that we would get for that. This is what he says. I have, you have your reward in full. Don't do this. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Don't do your righteousness to be noticed by them. Don't do things and then try to just tell other people all the stuff that you did. Don't minister because in a certain area or a certain way or a certain time because you know that certain people will be there to see it. I want to make sure that I get noticed by that guy. I want to make sure that the leaders notice me. I want to make sure that people understand that I'm serving in this way or this often and I'm telling you about this. And we can be very sneaky about this. We can hide it in a prayer request. We can hide it in just a report of what's going on. We can hide it in a social media post. We can just let it come up accidentally in conversation or steer conversations in that way. Be careful of practicing your righteousness to be noticed by men. Jesus warns against this not only with regard to giving, but also praying in Matthew 6, 5, fasting in Matthew 6, 16. He says, don't do your religion so that people will see you do it. Seek, rather, a reward that comes from God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, Paul 
said to the Corinthians, but to me it is a very small thing, a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court. It's just very little. Why? Because he was seeking something else. He knew that it is God who passes the judgment that matters. We spend all our lives tempted to seek out the praise and the approval of other people. Just tempted over and over again for what ultimately is an eternally meaningless assessment. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing at all. It doesn't give us any kind of heavenly reward. No praise that we receive from men in this world will result in eternal reward of any kind. Now, there may be times when their evaluation of us would accurately reflect what God thinks about us. But even if that's the case, it really doesn't matter. And that's why Paul goes on to say in that verse, in fact, I don't even examine myself. I'm conscious of nothing against myself, but I'm not acquitted by that. I, that's not what gives me the verdict. It's only the Lord. And he judges the motives and he is the one whose judgment counts. So we seek his praise and his honor. Watch out that you're seeking after the approval of men. Watch out that you pr present yourself publicly or that you kind of make yourself known and you make your ministry known in order to get people to approve of you. And be careful that you don't avoid doing certain kinds of ministry because you're afraid that people will disapprove of what you're doing. Don't seek the approval of man. Rather, seek the approval of God. And then number four, as far as dangers to look out for, are worldly measures of success. Worldly measures of success. And there are two main ones that I would like to focus on. First, statistics and numbers as ends in themselves. Statistics and numbers as ends in themselves. Now, I just want to go ahead and say up front that... It is, or at least it can be good to want to see more people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.15, listen to this. Paul says, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. This is something that the Apostle Paul actually said. He wanted to see more people receiving the grace of God so that God would get thanks and that he would be glorified by that. This is saying that people that are actually saved and that receive the grace of God, that this is a good thing. We shouldn't rejoice in nobody being saved. We shouldn't be just completely apathetic to the idea of how many people are saved. Paul rejoiced at the grace of God spreading to more and more people. At the same time, though, there are some limits on uh, how we need to view this and how we need to pursue this. One of these is we recognize that anywhere that our work has resulted in people being saved is strictly the result of what God has granted and allowed for. So if you're there in 2 Corinthians 5, just flip over a few uh, or four, flip over a few pages to chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Look at what he says. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. 
For we are not overextending ourselves as if we didn't reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Now, there's a lot going on there as you're reading that. Maybe your head is spinning a little bit. Um, Hopefully your wheels are turning at a minimum. But some of what he is pointing out there is this, that even the Apostle Paul who labored and strategized and worked and was someone who was really diligent and really gifted, he was only able to go where God providentially allowed him to go and to bear fruit. No gospel ministry took place outside of the quote-unquote sphere that he had been apportioned with. And everything that he did was only so far as God allowed him. Now, he wasn't supposed to just, you know, kind of look at a map and evaluate and say, well, we can only go so far because I believe God is only apportioned to us this much. No, he was rather recognizing that as far as he had been able to get with the gospel, all of that was by God's providential care and providential government of the world, his sovereignty. And yet he is giving him credit. He is giving God all the credit for this. And that's why he says, he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. When he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 15, he says, I'm not going to boast in anything except what Christ has done through me. He boasts in the Lord saving him. He boasts in the Lord as the one who works through him. He boasts in the Lord as the one who has granted him. Any kind of pride that we might be tempted to have in our own accomplishments and achievements, anything that's done, any territory that we take, so to speak, ought to just point right back to him. And so we boast in the Lord. Along with this, then, Paul recognized in writing his first letter to the Corinthians that it was not him who was the one who empowered people to be saved. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 7, Paul says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? I, just, I love those questions. Because what's the, what's the uh, pronoun that you expect to hear? Who is Apollos? And who is Paul? And it's as if he's saying we're, we're almost not even worth mentioning as persons. We are just instruments. What is Apollos? What is Paul? These were the people that the Corinthians were comparing and lining up behind and creating rivalries with each other about because they like this guy's style and this guy's leadership and this guy's speaking. And he says, what even are we? We're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave literally to each one, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. What does all of this mean? It means that we don't measure our own faithfulness or our own evaluation before God. First of all, we don't measure it at all. That's for God to do. But even when we're assessing, are we doing a good job? Have we been fruitful? Have we done things and well And what is the result of our ministry? We look and we say, anything that God has done, or anything that happens is the result of what God has done. We look at this and we say, we want as many people as possible to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be built up in the faith. And yet we take no credit for this because God is the one who brings these about. 
And so if God sees fit that through our diligent labor, there might be thousands of people added to the church every single week, then he gets the credit for that. And we don't take that to mean that we are any more or less faithful. But if no one responds to the gospel and we're being faithful to our calling and we are being diligent in our ministry, then we say God sovereignly has determined this as well. And we don't boast because a lot of stuff is happening and we don't complain and think that something necessarily is wrong because nothing seems to be happening. Statistics and numbers as ends in themselves simply don't work. We strive for faithfulness. We strive for, for fidelity to the scriptures. And we look to God as the one who deserves credit for all the good that comes. Now, along with these other worldly measures of success, uh, along with statistics and numbers, there is also the danger of envy and competitiveness and selfish ambition. Envy, competitiveness, and selfish ambition. Philippians chapter 1, verse 14 and following. Paul says, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Well, praise God for that, right? All is not quite well. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Even from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former, that is those who do it from envy and strife, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. That's almost unfathomable that people would do that. And yet that's exactly what was going on. But look what Paul says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. First of all, what Paul is saying here is that Christ is actually accurately being proclaimed. He is being preached. He doesn't rejoice just because the name of Jesus is getting out there. This is the same Paul that fought against false doctrine with all his might and says, if someone comes to you, Corinthians, and preaches another Jesus, you bear it gladly, but you shouldn't. He says, if anyone comes and preaches a different gospel than the one I've preached to you, even if it's an angel from heaven, then let him be accursed. Paul wasn't just satisfied that people would be out there preaching Jesus, having slightly different messages or different gospels. That's the way that this passage is sometimes taken today, unfortunately. And it's as if as, all, as long as we're preaching Jesus, we're all on the same team. That's not what Paul thought. But in this case, the assumption is they're actually preaching him correctly. They're preaching him in truth. The problem is that they're doing it in wrong motives. With wrong motives. They are doing it out of envy and strife. They are competitive against Paul. They envy him. They envy his role as an apostle. They envy maybe his reputation or the following that he has. Uh, they, they, whatever it is about him, they, they envy him. Ironically, even though he's in prison, they're envious of him. But something about him they're envious of. And what this says is that it is very possible to have an exactly right gospel message an exactly right gospel message, and to proclaim it faithfully and otherwise be doing ministry faithfully, but to do it with wrong motives. Now, we need to be careful here that we don't go down into the dumps of never actually knowing whether we're doing things from good or bad motives. Too often we struggle with our motives by just simply having some kind of vague idea that we might have one that's wrong. And therefore, we avoid doing ministry or really anything until we can be sure that our motives are pure. 
That's just not the way that Scripture wants us to operate. These are people who are doing this from envy and strife. And there is a way in which we need to actually search this out and say, why am I doing this? What am I trying to get out of this? And to the best of our ability, actually look at our efforts, the way we talk about people, the way we think about other people, what we do when we come before God in our prayers, and actually try to soberly evaluate, are we doing this for good motives or bad? We can generally tell what those are. It's not that we can know our hearts perfectly, but we also shouldn't think that it's impossible to know at all what our motives are for doing something. So we should do our best to understand our motives and then say, okay, we're going to reject bad ones and then we're going to move forward with as good a motives as we can in an ongoing way as scripture sanctifies us more and more. But we do need to watch out for doing this out of envy and competitiveness. You know, we need to do this because the other church down the street is bigger. We need to catch up. That other person's small group, that other person's Sunday school class, you know, it's bigger and more successful than mine. They listen to the other teachers better than me. That person has more friends than me, and they seem more involved. People are going to them for discipleship, and why aren't they coming to me? They're talking to me about their spiritual matters, or they're talking to someone else. Why aren't they talking to me? And we can get jealous and envious. Instead of having a rivalry, we ought to rejoice in the work that other people are doing, and we ought to seek that Christ might be proclaimed not in pretense, but in truth, for the good of their souls and for the glory of God. Well, if these are the dangers to avoid, what do we then need to cultivate, positively speaking? Let's look next at motivations to remember. Motivations to remember, and it starts with the work of Christ. The work of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15 for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ's love controls us. That is, his attitude has a constraining force upon our behavior, the way we think, the way that we act. His love controls us and the actual act that came from his love, his death and his resurrection on our behalf means, it entails, that we should no longer live for ourselves. So we minister because of what Jesus did for us. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And though we can't give our life as a ransom for many the way that he did, we can't redeem anyone by giving our own lives. We are called to have the same servant attitude toward other people. Jesus Christ, his death controls us because he died so that we would live for him and he rose for the same reason. This is why Paul calls upon Timothy to remember this in 2 Timothy 2.8 when he's struggling to be faithful in ministry uh, 100%. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Just those simple words. When you're scared, when you want to shrink back, when you're not sure that you want to minister because people are coming after you or people have hurt you or because you're just getting tired or because you're not sure you'll like the consequences or maybe no one's listening and you're just over it. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. This resurrection of Christ, by the way, motivates us to labor, even if it would result in our own martyrdom. 
2 Corinthians 4, 13 and 14, having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Of course we're going to speak, even if it means our own death, even if we get persecuted to the death for this, which is what happened with Paul. He says one day we're going to be raised with Jesus Christ and we're going to be raised with you. This is what's going to happen. So we're willing to do anything for the sake of hardship because, hey, God's going to raise us from the dead one day. The resurrection of Christ drives us. Another motivation to remember is the coming day of Christ. The coming day of Christ. And we looked at this when we talked about having a future focus. But uh, just to continue in what I read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says in verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We are looking to please Christ because there is a day coming in which he will evaluate what we have done. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. By the way, it's on this note that we persuade people as well because it's not just the ones ministering who will be judged for that. It's everyone will be judged as, as regards their own salvation. In verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. So we look in light of the future, the coming day of Christ. We are motivated by Christ's work, by Christ's coming. We are motivated thirdly by a love for the church. A love for the church and an understanding of what God is doing in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, a passage we've spent so much time in over the course of the past, uh, the past few months. Uh, it talks about the fact that we need to come to a unity of the faith. Verse 13, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The church needs to grow up. We minister because the church is never mature until Christ returns, and we need to play a part in making sure that it is working toward getting there. And that's why it says in verses 15 and 16 of that chapter, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. Each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If we understand what God wants the church to be, and if we understand what God wants the people in the church to be and to become, then this will drive us to serve them and to care for them and to do our part. By the way, at the core of this is the joy of seeing other people Walking in the truth, Third John 4, John says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in, in the truth. This is what we should find our greatest joy in as well, the salvation that we've received from God and seeing other people walking faithfully in it as well. And then, of course, number four, the glory of God. The glory of God motivates us. We serve so that he might be glorified. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
This was never far from the minds of everyone who ministered in the New Testament. But an example of this, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is why we serve. We serve because God deserves to be glorified. And if we forget this, and if it's just about what we can get out of it, if it's just about kind of some earthly good, if it's just about improving some things, even if it's just about doing good for people, we're going to lose the kind of motivation that we need to have to press on through everything. That kind of motivation can only be given if we do this because we're in it for the glory of our Creator and our Redeemer. So as we do this, then... There is one more component to consider, not just what drives us and the motivations to ministry, but now then the attitudes that we should have while we are doing it, the attitudes to cultivate. What kind of attitudes should characterize us as we do ministry and what will enable us to be sustained through faithful ministry? First attitude that we should cultivate is humility. Humility. And it's really um, impossible to say too much about this. But humility is at the heart of ministry. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You know, we use that phrase a lot, and there's a, there's a place for that. Paul was saying that he was actually the foremost of sinners because he persecuted the church. It's interesting that Paul would use the word sinner to describe himself. It's not often that the word sinner is used to describe a Christian. Um, Paul is using it, in fact, in the present tense. I am foremost of all sinners. What's he saying by that? That he's sinning worse at that present moment than everyone else? No, this is... The Apostle Paul, he was a pretty godly guy, and certainly he would be very sensitive to and aware of his own sin because he understood the word of God and he cared about holiness. But what he's doing there is he's referring to how greatly he had sinned against God, in particular as an unbeliever and as someone who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. Paul never forgot how greatly he had sinned against God. And sometimes it's easy for us to do that. It's easy to start to grow in godliness a little bit, to start to know what's right, and then to look out upon the unbelieving world and to see how bad they are and to see people who would name the name of Christ and not really care and to start getting a little bit, a little bit proud of yourself, to lose some of that humility. And this then makes you forget the need for you to go to God for his grace for yourself but also the urgency of the gospel message because that's the only thing that saves you. You can start to take the message for granted, and when you start to take the message for granted, it's easy to lose humility. So what you need to do is cultivate this. Even in your ministry itself and what you do, all the credit needs to go back to God. And this is something I've already touched on, of course, but uh, there's another angle on this in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says in verse 9 through 11, uh, sorry, 9 and 10, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And 
His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Here the Apostle Paul can say with a straight face that he labored more than all the other apostles. Amazing statement. How can he say that without it being boasting? First of all, it was factually accurate. But secondly, he says it wasn't me. It was the grace of God with me. Anything I did was just God's grace empowering me from ministry. And he truly believed that. That's the kind of humility you have to have. Humility in ministry does not come from saying that you never actually did anything right. It doesn't come from somehow blocking out of your mind anything that you've ever done or that you might do. What it comes from is a, an accurate assessment of yourself, which often means that you need an accurate assessment from others. But more than that, and really most of all in that, is accurately assessing yourself before God, which is that everything we've ever done that's good is completely a result of God's grace. Everything. And what that means as well is that if we're going to do anything good, then we need to seek his grace. We need to be strengthened by his power, by his Holy Spirit. We need the word of God dwelling in us richly. We need God to strengthen us. We need to pray and ask him for help for this. We need the ministry of the word of God toward us. We need other people encouraging us and helping us and praying for us. We are completely dependent. And this is one of the ways that humility manifests itself as independence, which is expressed in prayerfulness, which is expressed in not just thinking that we can do this on our own, in self-sufficiency. Humility results in that. It results as well, by the way, in selflessness, not doing ministry for your own glory and for your own interest. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Can we say we have the same kind of attitude where we're willing to give everything we have and to give of ourselves for the sake of other people and their souls to the glory of God? This is the attitude that carried him. This was the humility that he had because he recognized this isn't about himself. It's not what he can get. It's how he can serve other people. When we serve, we might be tempted to think that, that we need uh, some kind of title some kind of recognition some kind of um, reward for going above and beyond instead what we need to recognize is that we are stewards who by God's grace have been appointed to do the work that he did not have to give us the privilege of doing and so first Corinthians 4 tells us that we need to regard ourselves as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of Christ Paul says in first Thessalonians 2 verse 4 that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel we're stewards of this gospel message and so we're not trying to build a name for ourselves but for our master that's what we're doing and so we pursue humility galatians 5 26 says let us not become boastful challenging one another envying one another instead we need to be humble before god and toward one another the second attitude that we need to have to cultivate is love we need to cultivate love and uh, we've talked about this at length in previous messages as well, but this is something that we must cultivate. Love for God, love for other people. We need to have, as 1 Timothy 1.5 says, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith if we're going to cultivate this love. But it is only through love, Galatians 5.15, that we can truly serve one another. Excuse me, Galatians 5.13, sorry. Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. We need to serve, thirdly, with faith and hope. 
with faith and hope, meaning that we trust God. We don't go based just off what we see. We don't, uh, we don't just live for the present moment, but we do what God says that we are supposed to do, even if it doesn't make sense to us, even if people aren't responding the way we want at the moment, even if the results are not coming the way that we want, and even if what, we, uh, what we're ministering for, that there's no kind of immediate betterment to any situation or immediate change. We need to have proper expectations about what to expect in this life. And instead, we need to put our hope on what is coming. And so 1 Timothy 6.12 says that we are supposed to fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is what we are after. We are after what is coming. We do what God says because what he has told us to do. We don't say, well, this thing works or that thing seems effective or this thing seems to be what everybody else is doing. We say, God says this. We believe him. We believe his word and we believe his promises about the future. And therefore, we're willing to keep doing what he says and keep doing what he says, even if it looks foolish to everyone around us, just like Noah building an ark for a hundred years. And then one day, it all made sense. We walk by faith and we have hope in the life to come. Two more. Number four is perseverance. Perseverance. One of the great temptations in serving is to just get tired and quit. Just get tired and quit. Galatians 6.9 warns us against that. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For why? In due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Yes, ministry can be fatiguing. Serving other people can make you tired. Serving other people in your tiredness can happen and make you even more tired. But he says, let's don't get tired of serving one another. You need to persevere because you understand that your ministry has eternal significance. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not for nothing. The resurrection means, makes it mean everything, everything you do. Even if you don't see any fruit here in this life at all, everything you do is significant. Everything. You need to have perseverance. You need to be patient. As 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 says, patient when wronged, patient when wronged, patient when people don't respond the way that you want, patient when you don't see effects from what you're doing, patient when your prayers aren't answered, patient when fruit doesn't come the way you want, patience when everything seems to be going wrong. You serve with perseverance and patience and diligence, not just doing what's easy, but doing what's right and doing what's best. And then as you go, as you minister, fifth, do so with joy and thankfulness. With joy and thankfulness. We ought to rejoice how often? Always, Paul says. Always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. And we should especially rejoice when God does things that... Uh, that bring us joy, that, are, that, that give fruit from the work that we have been pl- uh, privileged to be part of. And so Paul is so thankful, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. 
We're so tempted to grumble and complain, so tempted to only see the downsides and the negatives of what God doesn't seem to be doing in our own lives and the lives of other people and our church and our ministry. It's so tempting to do that. And yet, the scripture calls us to give thanks and to have joy. We ought to have this kind of attitude as we minister. We ought to carry this around. We ought to exude it and be the kind of people that are known for being grateful and thankful and joyful over all that God has done. So as you come to the conclusion of all of this, are you ministering? How are you ministering? Are you cultivating these attitudes? Are you being diligent to serve? And uh, wherever you may find that you need to grow in these ways, I trust that you will go to the Lord and seek to consider how you might begin or how you might strengthen your ministry in and through and out from the church. And it's my hope that you'll be able to take these things and that the Lord will bless you as you seek to do just that. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you have been so kind and gracious to us in allowing us the privilege of serving you. Thank you that you give us the church to be the anchor of that. And may we value all that you are doing. And we just thank you so much for the work that you've done in our hearts and any ministry that you've done through us toward others. We pray that you would receive all the glory from that. In Jesus' name, amen.